On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Michael Haken about biblical spirituality, particularly in a historical perspective. So we get to ask him about what spirituality looked like in the ancient early church, what it looked like in the reform period, and what it looks like for Baptists, both early Baptists and contemporary Baptists, and what that means for our current spirituality. Uh, We also learn about what aspects of spirituality he thinks would be good to retrieve for evangelicals and Baptists today. All right. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners once again to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're the podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking, especially among our Baptist listeners. And today uh, we are lucky and super excited uh, to have Dr. Haken uh, with us, who is a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, uh, I know many of our listeners will know who Dr. Haken is, uh, but some of them do not. So, Dr. Haken, uh, before we jump into our episode talking about spirituality in general, uh, especially in Baptist and Reformed life, why don't you uh, take a second to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, it's great to be with you both. And um, yes, so I, I teach uh, church history, mostly at uh, Southern Baptist Seminary. I do a little bit of biblical spirituality in the PhD program. And um, I'm the chair of the history department here. I also direct the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, which um, is named after one of the co-workers of William Carey, really kind of the theological brains behind Carey. So we do conferences and uh, occasional publications and uh, provide a context for research into 18th century Baptist life, mostly in the UK. Um, I was born in the UK, came to Canada when I was in my uh, very early teens. Um, and was converted there in 1974. I uh, came out of, um, I was raised Roman Catholic, but came out of a, uh, by the time that I was converted, I'd gone through uh, Marxism, so pretty hardcore Marxist, and um, a lot of New Age stuff after Marxism. Well, not really New Age, but Zen Buddhism, Taoism, but kind of a New Agey kind of response to spirituality. And uh, went to Wycliffe College, which was an evangelical Anglican school, part of the consortium of colleges of University of Toronto, where I did a Master of Religion, which is really an academic degree. um, And that led to a PhD in church history. And uh, taught for about 20 years um, in Canada, and then began teaching here full-time in 2006, although I'd been adjunct at Southern since 2002. Married, um, my wife was instrumental, Allison is in my coming to Christ. And uh, we have two children, one of whom uh, both are married. One is living in Victoria, um, Vienna, sorry, Victoria. She's living in Vienna with her husband. And that's Vienna, Austria. And then the other, my son, Nigel, just recently married, uh, is doing a law degree in London, Ontario, which is about an hour from where we live. I commute to Southern. I'm uh, here regularly, obviously, but uh, we still live in the GTA, the greater Toronto area. Well, thank you for that uh, introduction. So we want to make the most of our time. So we'll jump right into the topic of spirituality here. Can you just give us a um, a bit of a brief definition of spirituality in the way that we're using it? I know it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. A lot of people mean very different things uh, when they use that word. So just give us um, a little bit of a definition to, to give the listeners their, um, some footing about what we're going to be discussing. 
Yeah, spirituality is, as you mentioned, uh, just a kind of a grab bag term. And, you know, it's all kinds of stuff have been thrown into it in the, um, the current context. Uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's a Christian term. It's, there are debates about when exactly it appears. It's definitely in Latin literature. It's a Latin term that we get it from. Uh, spiritualitas. It's definitely used in the late third, early, or late fourth, early fifth century, and really, it's historically been used to describe the work that the Holy Spirit does uh, for believers by um, uh, nurturing, uh, encouraging uh, all of their um, riches that they have in Christ to come to fruition. Um, it's Christ-centered, uh, scripturally centered, and ultimately should redound to the glory of God. Um, it is a Christian term, so the use of it in many other contexts in the 20th century, you know, you have a Buddhist spirituality, um, uh, even an atheist spirituality. I remember seeing a book on that. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of that, any of that. Not <laughs> but, um, but it's become a kind of a... a a very widely used term and so has occasioned i think for christian christians uh, some suspicion and so when we when we started a phd program here in spirituality uh dr whitney who is a colleague uh wanted to make sure that people knew when they read it about the course that this was biblical spirituality as so we call it biblical spirituality um but spirituality really in essence is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, bringing to fruition all of the uh, things that Christ has purchased for us on the cross to the glory of the Father. Awesome. So I know you mentioned even in your introduction that you kind of had a transformation from Marxism to, I guess, some Zen Buddhism, I think you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, now you teach at a Baptist seminary. What would you t consider normal or uh, I guess, a summary of what Baptists have taken spirituality to be? Well, um, obviously Bible-centered. I mean, that's a pretty standard uh, thing. Uh, the emergence of the Baptists come out of the Puritan movement. If the Puritanism is anything, it's, it's Bible-centered. Um, it's a desire to see what God has said in his word regarding both doctrine and worship and life uh, implemented in the life of the church. And so uh, Baptist spirituality has, at its best, always been uh, Biblicist. It's, it's, it's focused on the scriptures. Um, because of its uh, rootage in uh, Puritanism, it also has this kind of Christ-centeredness and also a pneumatological centeredness, uh, pneumato-centeredness, if you want to centric, if you want to describe it that way. Uh, the, uh, the Puritans were very, very fascinated by the work of the Spirit in relation to Christ, um, particularly his, uh, not so much his, they, they took for granted the, the, the early churches hammering out of the, who, was, who is the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. And they sought to build on that in terms of what does the Spirit do? What does he do in the believer's life? What does he do in the Christian church's life? How does the Spirit use the ordinances, believe, uh, believer's baptism, the Lord's Supper, as well as things like the you know, spiritual means of grace, preaching, prayer, to nurture Christians. Um, that's at its best. Um, there are, as I say, have been streams of Baptist life uh, that have displayed this, but other streams uh, impacted by, for instance, uh, 19th century revivalism, 
where there is a very, very strong anthropocentric or man-centeredness um, have, have had certain problems with areas of that. And so you, you find the emergence of, uh, in Baptist life, which really kind of falls under spirituality, uh, things like um, the kind of techniques and prog programmatic way of doing church that emerges in the 19th century. And that's because of a loss of a kind of theocentricity, a loss of God-centeredness. And then obviously in the 20th century, you have the emergence of streams of Baptist life that are liberal. They would have their own understanding of Baptist spirituality, um, but it, because of their liberal theology, they're, they're failing to adhere to an orthodox foundation uh, we would probably regard certain elements of their spirituality as as really deviant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm interested. You mentioned how it's kind of transitioned somewhat over the centuries of what Baptists have looked at as spirituality, and I think, you know, when I when I talk to I think most Baptists today, um, and I were to ask them what does their spirituality look like, it would be very different than uh, Christ-centered, Bible-centered. They might use those words, uh, but it seems like. Uh, I don't know what a representative book might be. I know Brandon mentioned Jesus Calling to Me the other day as pretty popular, I guess, maybe in Baptist life. I don't know uh, how popular that is, but is there is there a reason, uh, I guess you mentioned revivalism, that specifically has moved Baptist uh, spirituality away from these types of ordinary means of grace where it's centered on things like the sacraments or, or centered on the Bible, centered on prayer, or now it seems more uh, me in my closet listening to Hillsong? Yeah, I, th I think there's probably an, any number of factors. One of them is a larger cultural context. Um, individualism is certainly a very dominant aspect of Western culture um, for centuries. But it seems that in certain periods and in certain geographical regions, it's been exacerbated. So, um, uh, ever since the the uh, emergence of revivalism, which really are these, the use of various techniques to generate spiritual enthusiasm in the early 19th century, um, the focus on the individual rather than the church um, has certainly been a uh, a factor in um, convincing Baptists that what's vital in their spirituality is what they do by themselves um, in their quiet time, as it came to be known in the, in the 19th century. Um, and then the sort of songs that we've sung, um, unlike other traditions that have a book of common prayer, we've uh, tended to uh, use our hymnody as our kind of prayer book and it's the only thing we we say together in common and so the hymns that we sing are going to shape us enormously um and so you you would you could easily have somebody preaching one thing but the hymns are saying something different and in time those those hymns are going to have their their impact so i our hymnody has had an enormous influence um, we don't have a book of common prayer where you have orthodox, theologically orthodox prayers grounded in Reformation theology being repeated. So that even if, even if there is a theological deviation uh, in the 
preaching as there was throughout the uh, early 18th century, for example, you've still got the prayer book mm-hmm. grounded in Thomas Cramner's Reformation uh, theology of um, 1549, 1552, and then reprinted in 1662. But you've got a Reformation theology that those prayers are being read, and they they will have their own impact. We don't have anything like that. So once the preaching starts to deviate, um, it's the hymns that are going to keep us steady to some degree. Uh, speaking here from a human vantage point, and our hymns begin to shift in the tw- in the 19th century, and the shift uh, is to hymns that have a very heavy experiential tone and not so much a heavy theological tone and so the hymns of fanny crosby for example and we might think fanny crosby today is old hat and she's kind of represents the tradition but the reality is when her hymns started coming into common circle common currency in the 19th century they were enormously controversial because they were not doing what the 18th century hymn hymn that he had done which is really usually tell a narrative, tell a story that relates to elements of the Christian life, uh, be it the Trinity, uh, the cross, the resurrection. But 19th century hymnody pretty well fo- is focused on conversion, you know, my own personal story. And so the richness of 18th century spirituality, which dealt with the whole area of sanct- the sanctification of the believer, begins to be lost uh, in the 19th century. So that's a, that's a factor. Um, then in the 20th century, you have a variety of other streams, the rise of the Pentecostalism, uh, which scares Baptists silly. So that <laughs> we, begin, we, we, fa- we, we no longer talk about the Holy Spirit. And, and that's just fatal, because the Spirit is the person whom the, the Son has left to, to secure our growth in Christ, etc., etc. And whereas our 18th century four Baptist forebears because of their Puritan heritage, along with their experience of revival, were deeply interested in the work of the Spirit. Baptists in the 20th century become increasingly fearful of the Spirit. But the fearful, the, the, the Spirit is the, the agent who reminds us that our Christian life is not a man-centered life, it's theocentric. We realize we can do nothing without Him. But because of the fear of the Spirit in the, in the 20th century, uh, the kind of anthropocentrism that emerges in the wake of revivalism of the 19th century really has no, nothing, to, nothing to, to, to offset it. And then obviously, again, in the 60s, you get the emergence of the charismatic movement. And then the sort of postmodern, if you want to use that phrase, cultural changes that we've experienced, you know, the relativism, the lack of absolute truth. And that's had its own impact. And that book, Jesus Calling, um, I don't really know it well, um, is kind of a illustrative of that you know what is jesus saying to me you know what do i think well mm-hmm. what does this passage say to me in scripture um and i sometimes tell students i, I don't give a hoot what you think the passage <laughs> uh, the reality is, what does the passage state what 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 is it saying and uh so there's a variety of things that have really really contributed to the sort of situation that we find in a probably pretty typical say baptist church in north america today in terms of worship, uh, preaching, and broadly speaking, spirituality. Yeah, I'm interested. You mentioned, uh, I think, early on that the quiet time was kind of coined, I think you said, in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, it seems like if I talk to most people, that is what they would kind of define as the pinnacle of their walk with, yep. with Christ. Yep. So 
how, what exactly led to that being created in the 19th century? And how did it well, take again, over? again, a number of things. One is, if you go back to the, the Reformation era, um, in the Book of Common Prayer, there is uh, detailed uh, details regarding how to have um, a time of worship morning and evening. Uh, the, whole, the whole year is laid out in terms of reading the Bible in a year, which if you faithfully follow it, you'd read the Bible through in a year. Um, the cultural context lent itself as well to having the idea of morning and evening prayer on a communal basis, because most people lived in small agrarian settlements in Britain, um, somewhere around 80%, maybe more, of the population lives in small towns. Um, the largest town, say, in, in 1600 would have been London with maybe half a million people. The next largest town is a place called Norwich in East Anglia um, with 8,000. You've got a town of half a million and then one with 8,000, and then you just go down from there. So the vast majority of the population live in small rural centers where there is a local church and where the minister, if he's a, if he's a God-fearing minister, like uh, the founders of what we call Puritanism, men like uh, Richard Greenham, um, Richard Sibbs, these men would conduct morning and, eve morning and evening prayer and express definitely for morning prayer that all of their parishioners would turn up. It'll be a half hour of time. There'd be some prayers, there'd be reading of the scripture and a very small exposition. By the time you hit the 17th century, that world is breaking down because of the growth, uh, the, the early years before the Industrial Revolution. And then the Industrial Revolution hits in the 18th century. It completely destroys that world because people now are no longer able to, to go to church for a half hour before they go out to the fields. They have to be at the factory at a set hour. You've got 12 hours of work in the factory. So the Industrial Revolution radically changes the dynamic of people's lives. And so people, that, pastors then begin to emphasize, if you can't gather communally, which increasingly is the case, then have your own private quiet time. Hmm. Um, they could not have foreseen the way in which that would be devastating to spirituality. It would, it would basically make spirituality my own personal journey. Um, there are other things that come to, uh, to kind of symbolize that. Around 1900, a lot of congregations shifted from the use of a common cup for the Lord's Supper. Um, I still remember being in a small church in Northern England in Yorkshire, uh, preaching there, and they had the Lord's table afterwards, and it was a common cup, and it was passed down the row. And I don't know what Baptists would do to that with that. <laughs> you know? and, but that was your standard. Yeah. And people knew how to deal with it. It was, it was always silver. And because it was alcohol, you had a, an antiseptic to some degree against germs. And you'd always turn the cup. So when you drank out of it, you weren't drinking from the place where the person drank before. And so there was a whole procedure. Well, in around 1900, because in large industrial centers, they were breeding grounds for things like typhus, cholera, uh, diphtheria, we shifted to individual cups. And then we obviously had shifted from uh, the alcohol to uh, the use of wine to actual uh, non-fermented grape juice in the 19th century. And so that, that, little, that little use of single cups, that, that illustrates again the kind of individuality. I mean, it doesn't foster it, but it's just one more little thing. 
And so by the time you hit the 20th century, you're right. Um, if you ask somebody what's the core of their Christian life, it's their quiet time. If you asked a Puritan like Benjamin Keach in his book, The Glory of the True Church, I think it's revealed, um, he, has a, he has a statement where he says, if, if because of time you have to make a choice between your own prayer to God, your own prayers to God, and meeting with the church, what should you do? You meet with the church. Hmm. And I often point out to students, uh, probably most people in the 20th century would have said the opposite. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially the, the point about Keach, and that kind of leads into my next question. So it seems like Baptists are sort of caught between two worlds. You mentioned our our heritage is rooted in the Puritan and Reformed tradition, and now it seems like we've been really influenced by revivalism and um, there's a very subjective focus uh, to our worship. So can you give us, and maybe you sort of started to answer this with um, the point about Benjamin Keach, but can you give us a couple of specific Reformed or Puritan um, distinct, um, dis- distinguishing marks of their spirituality that you'd like to see Baptist reincorporate into our understanding of spirituality mm-hmm. today? Yeah, there's probably a number. Uh, definitely one would be the whole the discipline of meditation. Um, we have no idea how to do that. It's never talked about uh, in terms of the larger setting. This would have been standard for, for Baptists coming out of Puritanism. Uh, the taking of a portion of Holy Scripture. First of all, memorization of Scripture. That was critical. Uh, we, we tend to encourage kids to memorize, but not adults. So the memorization of Scripture, and then the memorization of Scripture had a goal, which was meditation. And the, the, the turning over of a text, you know, for maybe 15, 20 minutes in your mind, asking various questions. What does this text teach me about Christ? What does it teach me about my salvation? What does it say about me? Um, what are other passages that bear on this subject that I can think of, and so on? So meditation is something that is very foreign to our to our whole spirituality. Um, a second area that is very foreign is because the table, the Lord's Supper. I mean, the Lord's Supper in many Baptist churches is a tack-on at the end of a service, maybe once a month, um, where it takes 10, 15 minutes. Uh, if you read a book like Ann Dutton, her uh, she has a book on the Lord's Supper that she wrote in the 1740s, runs to about 120 pages. And for her, the supper was the hi- was the highlight in many ways of her Christian life. And it's quite clear that the supper probably would have taken half an hour, 40 minutes, maybe an hour, hmm. um, where there would have been prayer, meditation. Um, at that point, uh, and there would have been some singing as well. Um, our view of the table, I think, has led to this. We, we tend to have a memorial-only view. And I'm personally convinced of what we would describe as um, spiritual presence, which is that Christ is at the table. We are communing with the risen Christ through the Spirit. We're not eating any way, shape, or form his physical body or blood. His risen humanity is at the right hand of the Father. But that nonetheless, it's kind of that reformed view that goes back through the Puritans to people like Calvin, um, and uh, Bullinger and Zwingli in his very latter years. So we, we, don't, have, we don't have a view of the table uh, as, a, as a key element of our spirituality. And our Baptist forebears did, very much so. So that when, you, when they came to exercise discipline in the local church, one of the means of discipline 
was you couldn't partake of the table. Now, I think if you did that today in some churches, it wouldn't make a difference in the lives of the people because the table's not important to them. Hmm. But it made all the difference in the lives of truly God-fearing people who had fallen into sin because this was a critical element of their, of their lives. And if I would add another, it'd probably be journaling. Hmm. Uh, the early Baptists we're talking about all kept journals. Well, not all, but many of them. And uh, that's a Puritan, it's a Puritan tradition. That actually emerges with the Puritans. It, there is no evidence it was a very common uh, tradition among the Reform, in the Reformation period. It's part of the Puritan tradition. And there are different arguments about where this came from. Some argue it came from the sort of logs, log books that sailors, uh, captains of the sailing ships would keep. But whatever the origins, uh, Baptists in the past would keep a track of how God dealt with their souls. And so they, they could, they could, they would then, well, another thing that they do that we don't do is they would have, um, they would draw up covenants with God. Um, often like Matthew Henry, he's not a Baptist, but this could be evidence from Baptists. Uh, every, every um, New Year's Day and then the anniversary of his conversion, he would write a recommitment to God and he'd look back on the past and he could look back on the past, not through his shaky memory, but through written text, he could see how God had led him in the previous year and what he wanted to commit himself to. So these are various disciplines. And by the way, covenant, the idea of covenant also is um, a corporate thing. There are corporate covenants. That those are virtually completely not part of our church's life at all. But there used to be a corporate covenant. Everybody, when you joined a Baptist church, uh, you would commit yourself to a corporate covenant, which would be renewed every year publicly, um, by the, the, co the covenant being recited together on a specific day. And so these are very spiritual disciplines that have been lost in the course of the 20th century. Now, would you say, I know at least the common popular understanding, at least of the early church, they probably think of spirituality there. They may have prime examples of at some point they become monks and they go off in the desert. Uh, there's, I don't know if popular understanding has a very clear picture of what spirituality looks like for the early church after the apostles. Um, so is there a, a big difference between something like reformed spirituality, Baptist spirituality, contemporary spirituality versus what was there in the early church? Or is that uh, more similar than most people might think? Um, yeah, there are, there, are, there are similarities, and yet there are also significant differences. And you really kind of prob probably have to make a division between uh, around the time of Constantine. So when Constantine becomes emperor in 306 and he reigns till uh, 337, um, uh, he introduces such vast reaching changes into the Roman Empire that there, the, the entire situation of the church's relationship to the state is radically changed. So you, you then have a state church. Hmm. And uh, from that point on, spirituality is going to look somewhat different. Prior to the, the rise of to the emergence of Constantine, the church is being persecuted 250 years, longer than the United States has existed as a nation, um, of persecution. And so the, the martyr is a paradigm for spirituality. And while many Christians didn't become martyrs, Nonetheless, there is this constant remembrance that this, our, our life in Christ is one in which we are at radical odds with the culture, 
And we are those who, by God's grace, have chosen to follow Christ, even if it end in our death. And so the spirituality then of that early period um, is somewhat different from the spirituality that follows with Constantine. Um, with Constantine, you now have a question, which is the question of identity. What does it mean to be a Christian in a culture where everybody says they're a Christian? And the early church's answer to that is monasticism. And monasticism becomes a, is a problem, but um, it is the way, it's the way the church sought to preserve the, the radical nature of the Christian life. And it has an ascetic component. There's no doubt that if you look at what are the three marks of uh, monasticism, uh, celibacy, simplicity, and obedience would be parts of those, would be the three marks. Well, the simplicity is the asceticism. When you come to Puritanism, it too has an ascetic component. And the Puritans took seriously, and you see it in John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, they took seriously that uh, living in this world is challenging for the Christian, and there are various things that you have to let go. We're not... We're not Going to heaven is not carrying everything in this world into heaven with us. And I think we've lost that component. And so when I teach the kind of the early monastic movement, I do bring out the parallel. There is an asceticism. The, the early monks were conscious that to follow Christ means to die to everything. Die to our plans, uh, die to who we are, die to status, etc., etc. We are no longer our own, we're Christ's. And the Puritans knew that. Early Baptists knew that, too, because the early Baptist movement was deeply marginalized. They were on the fringes of society. They were regarded as weirdos because they did what nobody else did, was baptize believers by immersion underwater. And everybody knew that plunging the body into water was dangerous for your health, uh, which is completely wrong. But be that as it may, again, the, the problem that has emerged for Baptists in America, particularly the South, is they are the, they're the established church. Hmm. And they've lost, to some degree, Baptists in the 20th century in the South lose that cutting edge. Hmm. And they think they can take the entirety of their culture with them to heaven, and it just ain't so. <laughs> um yeah. And it, it, so the, the monastic movement, early, early church history has its problems, but it, it, it does have this ascetic strain, which is picked up by the Puritans. Well, there are similarities, but also dissimilarities. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, before we let you go, I, I did want to, so we, we've talked about, we brought up a couple of times the book, Jesus Calling. I think all three of us would say that's a representative of a spirituality that we should not be pursuing. Um, could you maybe give us, um, give the listeners a few different book recommendations on if this could be from the early church, Puritan or modern period um, of a, a healthy view of more reformed spirituality. Uh, if somebody's interested in learning more about that. Yeah. I mean, probably in more recent years in the modern world, so to speak, uh, the first thing that would come to my mind is uh, Jonathan Edwards, religious affections. And especially the, the, the third part of the book where he deals with what is true spirituality. It is a deeply searching book. Um, I've taught on it in a number of contexts, once did a whole course on the book, and that, that's how rich it is. So that would probably be the first book that would come to my mind. 
Uh, Andrew Fuller's Life of Samuel Pierce. Well, what is mission? What is spirituality, and particularly a missionary spirituality, a spirituality that is deeply concerned for the salvation of others and is shaped by the love of God? What does it look like? Uh, Andrew Fuller, in a life of this young man, 33 years old, one of the, one of his and William Carey's closest friends, sought to lay that out. He's been just sometimes described as the Baptist Brainerd. Uh, David Brainerd's book, uh, his life, is also very good. With the with the, with this caveat that Brainerd, I think, wrestled wrestled with depression. Hmm. And I think you sometimes see that. Edwards knew that. He makes he alludes to it. But that would be another book. And then a book in the 20th century, which might be a bit surprising, um, is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I read that years and years ago when I was a very young Christian. And to be honest, uh, it's a dangerous book to read because it'll give you a hunger for genuine Christian community that is not satisfied with anything less. And um, um, I can't, I, this is not the context, uh, and I don't have the time, obviously, to go into you know, how that sometimes has been frustrating for me as a Christian, uh, trying to live in community where many others are deeply shaped by a much more individualistic spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, th there is a, I mean, there's, there's one chapter in the book which is not good, where he, he deals with confession of sin. Uh, confession of sin is good, but not. I don't. I'm not happy with the way he deals with it. But it's it's just a tremendous book, uh, in so many ways. And so those are just a few uh, little items. And if there's one from the early church, um, it probably would be Augustine's Confessions, hmm. where well, Augustine has an understanding of spirituality that ultimately on a spirituality is participation in the beauty of God and being impacted by the beauty of God, which is the goal towards which we are all living, that we will one day see his beauty in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, there will be things in the book you don't agree with, but again, that's been a deeply influential book in my life. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm honestly, I'm really curious though for the average church member today who isn't up for reading religious affections, who isn't up for reading uh, David Brainerd's biography or these other books? Is there one uh, a one-stop? You know, hey, here's a small, short book that can kind of orient you away from an individualistic yep. uh, mindset. Yeah, um, uh, two, there's, there's two small series of books. Uh, they're extracts of uh, spiritual uh, spirituality from various authors. One of them has done. I did with. Um, Joshua Press. Uh, these are books that deal with like the spirituality of Andrew Fuller um, or Oliver Cromwell, interesting figure, uh, George Whitfield. And what it is, after a brief intro, there's about 30 to 40 little extracts that you can read in two minutes, hmm. max, two or three minutes. And uh, they give you, you could do it in a month. Just yeah. take they, one of them as a month. And uh, we've done their Joshua Press is now owned by a company called H and E uh, Publishing in Southern Ontario, and they they basically carry these. The other one is the same similar sort of idea that I I was involved with Joel Beakey um, at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and they're published through uh, Reformation Heritage Books. Mm -hmm. Same idea, uh, books of about a hundred pages. Um, John Bunyan's in that series. Spurgeon's in that series. And these are just little extracts. They're not big books. And you're right, uh, you know, Edwards' Religious Affections is a big 
work to, to kind of slog through, yeah. slog through. But these are, these are small extracts. Um, the introduction is helpful, gives you an overview of the person and his spirituality, but you can easily jump right into the text. And then most of them are designed to be basically kind of a, uh, a reading in addition to the scriptures that you could do in a month. They're usually about 30, 35 little extracts. And none of them take more than two or three minutes to read. That's great. Um, thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you. Um, honestly, we've, we've had a pleasure having you on talking about this topic. Um, we, we'd love to talk to you more about it in the future, uh, but we want to be respectful of uh, everyone's time, I think, because uh, I think most of, the, most of our listeners listen as they're driving to work or driving home from work. So I encourage our listeners to check out more of Dr. Haken's stuff. I know you've written a lot on, on these different areas. Um, if they're interested in finding all of what you've written, is there one place that they can go to find that? Yeah, www.andrewfullercenter.com. All one word, Andrew Fuller Center, spelt the American way, C E N T E R, uh, dot org. Uh, well, I need to mention that because I'm, you know, I'm a Canadian. Right. <laughs> we spelled it a wee bit differently. But yeah, www.andrewfullercenter.org. That's also got a, a contact info for myself if you wanted to follow up with an email to myself. Awesome. Well, we, we love having you on. We encourage our listeners to check all, uh, all your material out and uh, follow up with you if they have any questions. And again, uh, we, really, we really thank you for your time, and uh, we thank you thank all you. for listening in to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we talk about all things analytic, Baptist, and professional, uh, and uh, we hope you had a great time listening to Dr. Aiken as we did. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.